0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed mazmi a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Anna Bank, the author of Islamic Sufi Networks in the Western Indian Ocean, circa 1880 to 1940. Ripples of Reform, published by Brill in 2014. Dr. Anna Bang is a professor of history at the University of Bergen in Norway. Her research interests are the Islamic history of the Western Indian Ocean in the 19th and the 20th centuries, including Yemen, Oman, Kenya, Tanzania, and Mozambique. Her work has mainly focused on various forms of religious change, such as text and book circulation and reforms of ritual and teaching practices, but also social, legal, and political change. Professor Anna Bank conducted projects for the digitization and conservation of manuscripts and texts which are in private ownership and in danger of environmental degradation, among other factors in East Africa, which we will be talking about later in this interview. By discussing Islamic Sufi networks in the Western Indian Ocean, we will explore how, in the period from 1880 to 1940, organized Sufism spread rapidly in the Western Indian Ocean. New communities turned to Islam, and Muslim communities turned to new texts, practices, and religious leaders. On the East African coast, the Sufi orders were both vehicles for conversion to Islam and reform of Islamic practices. Prof. Bank traced the impact of Sufism on local communities geographically as a ripple, reaching beyond the Swahili cultural zone southwards to Mozambique, Madagascar, and Cape Town. Through an investigation of the texts, ritual practices, and scholarly networks that went alongside Sufi expansion, this book places religious change in the Western Indian Ocean within the broader framework of Islamic reform. Speaking from the North Sea, welcome, Anna, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today.
1: Thank you so much, Ahmed. I'm glad to be with you. I'm uh, glad to look from the North Sea to the Indian Ocean.
0: It's amazing how the last time we've met was in 2019 summer, I believe, during uh, a workshop that you've organized with Professor Scott Rees on East Africa's Islamic manuscripts. And you brought graduate students and researchers from Mozambique, uh, Zanzibar, Lamu, and all the way to Ethiopia. And today we meet again uh, during the elections day of Tanzania and Zanzibar.
1: Yeah, uh, that is, I, I've been following it uh, all day, actually. And I, I sent my wishes yesterday for a peaceful and free and fair election. will will have the results soon of that. The elections in Zanzibar has always been contested, so my main hope is that it will be peaceful, free, and fair.
0: We will be uh, following up, and um, I'm glad that we have this opportunity to share the book today. Uh, Before we start talking about the book, um, I would like you to say a few words about yourself that is uh, where you grew up, how, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study about Islam and the Indian Ocean, and any influential mentors that you had along the way.
1: Okay, I I grew up actually where, right where I'm sitting right now, because now we are in home offices due to the COVID pandemic, of course. Uh, which is uh, a rural community a little bit south of Bergen in uh, Norway. Or it used to be a rural community. Now it's increasingly becoming a suburb as as everywhere else. Uh, So there was nothing in particular to say that I should take an interest in the Indian Ocean at all. Uh, I studied uh, first in Stavanger, which is a city south of here then in Bergen. And then I started to study history. And uh, I remember to this day, I walked into the hall, which at that time, it was uh, simply a blackboard where you had the choices of this or supervisors or topics. And all the topics were like Viking Age or Rural farm development in Norway and things like that. And then there was one poster that said uh, Egypt under Nasser. And I thought, okay, that's probably interesting. And then I ticked off on that one and I walked into the office of my supervisor, who the person who was to become my supervisor. And that was uh, Sean Ufahi, who was then the professor of African Islamic history at uh, in Bergen. And it sort of just rolled from there. He uh, first supervised me on my MA thesis, which was on Yemen, uh, the Idrisi state in Yemen. And uh, I realized then, of course, that Yemen has a reach that goes far beyond its borders and into the Indian Ocean. And then gradually I came into, into the East African side. Actually, my PhD proposal said I would study uh, hadramis in Indonesia. So <laughs> these, are the, these are the chances and the random events of life that just take you.
0: Amazing. Uh, I remember reading um, an interview conducted with Professor Fai about his own research in Darfur and the fact that he also saved uh, a number of manuscripts and documents from that region by photographing them, which they are lost to us, unfortunately. So it's it's really fascinating to see you following the footsteps of Fahi and also doing similar work um, in in Africa. Um, Let's let's turn to the book because the book is very rich and there's a lot of things I would like to ask you about. uh, let's start with how did the book idea develop? What was the research process like uh, and your writing experience of um, Sufi, uh, Islamic Sufi networks in the Western Indian Ocean?
1: Well, uh, to, to be honest, uh, actually, the the book developed, I, I would say, first and foremost, from a, from a funding proposal. It's as mundane as that because I worked almost 15 years in... Uh, in research institutes uh, uh, where you have to rely on external funding. So what you do is you sit down, you write these really, really ambitious uh, project proposals. And towards the end, you sort of realize, oh my God, I have to deliver on all, all these promises. And, and the project at that time was, was called, uh, I, I actually looked it up now before our talk, uh, it was entitled Linking Global Cities, Tracing Logo- Local Practices in the Western Indian Ocean. And it included uh, many researchers, uh, inc- for uh, Abdul Sharif from Zanzibar, Professor Abdul Sharif, Elke Stockwriter, and others. And uh, the idea behind the project was actually quite simple. Uh, this was back in 2005 or six, I think. And we wanted to look at selected sites on the East African coast and then ask questions like, what, what is the same? What's different in terms of Islamic practices? And at that time, we were thinking very much in terms of the local global context, which was kind of current language back then. But along the way, I, I got much more interested in uh, in Islamic reform and reformism. If, if this if you do see this variation which you do then i started to ask how how do these leaders propose change and how does that play out in the broader context of islamic reform and in the very local context so it sort of developed from from there it it came out of a much more sort of mapping like where we were looking at text and diffusion of text and so on and for me it merged it or it sort of grew into uh, a study of reform more than diffusion and uh, local global issues so the impact of Sufism as such in East Africa is or was and still is very well documented so it made sense to me at the time, at least, to look at variation and both within the same scholarly systems, I mean, the same tariqas, the alawiyah, uh, the shadiliyah, the qadiriyah, the big ones, and across locations. So this question just sort of came up out of another research, and I think this book is the, at least an attempt to synthesize what what we did in that project.
0: So the book, as you've said, gathered and synthesized uh, the research that was ongoing and you've you've written a number of works prior to this book, uh, such as The Idrisi State of Asir, published in 1996, uh, and then Sufis and Scholars of the Sea, Family Networks in East Africa, 1860 to 1925, published by Routledge in 2003, which is actually translated now into Arabic uh, under the title Sofiyu Alama al-bihar al-shabakat wa al al-usariya published last year by a Yemeni publisher in Tarim, um, and then Restless uh, in 2005, and then finally Zanzibar Olsen in 2008. So, um, do you find uh, this book connects or departs from your previous works, and if so, in, in what ways?
1: in different ways actually i mean, the the ripples of reform i think it's a it's a most direct continuation of uh, sufis and scholars of the sea uh, but with a much wider geographical lens and and that was my purpose both with the project proposal and with the book the sufis and scholars of the sea was really focused on the Hadroma to Zanzibar axis in a way, although I did trace the main character, the Ahmad bin Sumayt, to Grand Kumor, to Egypt, to Istanbul, and there are also these extensions that go to, to Kerala, that go to Indonesia, so it, it's more mostly, mostly directly related to that book. About the other books you mentioned, I think maybe they are related in a little bit different way. The, the one on the Idris state of Asir, I, retrospectively at least, I think it can be argued that it deals with somewhat similar topics, that how ideas are used to claim authority. But in the case of the Idris state, I was talking about actual political authority. But uh, the work I did with that one uh, introduced me to the Yemeni context and alerted me, like I said, to the much, much, much broader world that you have to acknowledge and be aware of when when you work on Yemen, even if it was a very local, small state that was profiled in that book. Mm. Regarding Zanzibar Olsen, I, I, that, that was just a side project for me on, on Norwegian timber trade, which I wrote under another project. Everything here was so very much project-related. Uh, and that project was called In the Wake of Colonialism on Norwegian traders and uh, 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 yeah, generally no Norwegian commercial activity. In the period. So, I worked on a small timber trading company that was in Zanzibar exactly in the same years as uh, I'm writing about in Sufis and Scholars of the Sea and also in the Ripples book. So, to me, it was just another small facet of the big picture, if you like. And it's, it was one that I keep in mind sometimes when I write about Zanzibar because, you know, these, these people are present at the same time in a very small town, as you know, where people live very close to each other. Like Sanzibar Olson, for example, he was almost next door neighbor to Ahmad bin Sumait, who is in the Sufis and Scholars book. I actually looked them up on the maps. So there were three or four houses between them. And it sort of it helps you think about what this society was like. And it was also for both of them, and whether you look at it from the side of the Sufi scholars or these Norwegian traders or basically any other, the one that is so deeply marked by the colonial presence. So it was for me a very good way of understanding really the impact of the colonial mm-hmm. presence. Uh, the, the last book you mentioned, yeah, that's, that is, uh, that's, an, that's an essay that has to do with travel as such. So it's more a reflection on how travel changes you, how you are in the world when you are not in your home, when you move around. So in that sense, I think you may say it prepared me for writing about uh, scholars who appear in uh, ripples of reform. Amazing. Um,
0: And and in addition to your scholarly works, you've also an accomplished novelist uh, in Norwegian. You've published three novels. Uh, and I've translated them into English, but I'm not sure how truthful the translation is. The, the first is "The Art of Escape," <laughs> published in 1997. "Hold in Reality," published in 2003, and "Time and Silence," published in 2006. Correct me if these translations are right or wrong. They are Next. pretty
1: good. <laughs> um, you drew
0: on your knowledge of Arabic in Yemen for your second novel, "Hold in Reality." Uh, can you share with us? Uh, your thoughts on the crossroads of writing fiction and historical narratives, as you've alluded to, do you see your creative and scholarly works speaking to each other? And if so, in what ways historians can profitably engage in both genres of writing? Uh,
1: actually, I, I think it, uh, it can work in quite different ways. I, I can f- first say how it works for me and then try to reflect a bit more on the writing process I mean frankly sometimes I I get really fed up with academic work (laughs) that's uh, I mean historical inquiry which is what we do which is what we do on a day-to-day basis it's it is really interesting it's really important and it really i think i really do believe it leads to understanding somehow or uh, you know a knowledge that is both useful and applicable and not least i think it leads at best it leads to really fruitful debate but as you know i think many historians know <laughs> that sometimes in the day-to-day work it's incredibly dry you just sit there and you read and you look for something and you sit in the archives and you turn another dusty page and another dusty page Uh, and it's frankly sometimes boring at least that's how I experienced it so for me fiction fiction both reading but also writing is has always been a kind of escape like a place where anything is possible if you want to say this you just say it you don't have to argue or reason or show in any other you don't have to build your argument you can structure it according to different rules if you like so and and it's only only your own imagination that binds you so i guess my my two sort of worlds they speak to each other in that sense but and and the one that you mentioned the the hold on reality or grip on reality or that was actually deliberately set in in partly in yemen
0: in
1: in south yemen even in (laughs) Hadramaut. i think if i remember correctly that i even said it explicitly and I, I think it was a more than anything, it was a stern, very stern warning to myself because the one of the the main male protagonist there is an archaeologist, and his life ends really badly because he quite literally turns to dust <laughs> in in his dusty setting over his dusty old things. He just crumbles and becomes. Uh, a pile of dust uh, and ends there. So, to me, I, I I remember writing it as a warning to myself. On the other hand, I I do find that I, I I find imagination to be an essential quality of being an historian. If you you will never have all the dots. If you work from especially if you work from archival material but even also from textual material like the islamic texts that i've been working on however well trained you are however knowledgeable you you will not have every single dot in the path so you have to fill in the blanks would simply with your imagination. The only difference being that in a historic a historical study or a proper historical work, you, you would have to argue for the leaps of your imagination. And I, I, I do find also a lot of inspiration in history, I think. I mean, his, history is magic in so many ways. You, it is like a country which you... Well, that's a cliché that it's a it's a foreign country, but it's a country which you have to imagine. You have no choice if you are if you are curious about what life is like in I don't know, let's say the Maldives, which I am, by the way. <laughs> then you simply go there, but with the past you can't. So you you can let it inspire your imagination and. Uh, in in a whole different way so and and last point i mean i in the course of my work i've had to i've had to i've had the pleasure of uh, working in different languages uh, english which we are using now arabic for example french and i sometimes find it really i, I find it uh, inspiring in itself the way other languages will express the same concept so so it means that in my I can I can make poetry in my own language simply by rephrasing something that is a common statement in Arabic or or English for that matter so it's it, there is the element of playing with uh, languages which I can only do in in my native language I would never be able to do it in English or let
0: alone any of the others. These are very useful insights. Thank you for sharing them. Uh, definitely imagination, in a way, it's a con- the connective tissue, you would say, of of history, right? We bring in um, these archival clues and then we try to stitch them together in a narrative, most of which is, you know, based in, in that connective tissue uh, that we call imagination. Um, and, and this shows, actually, in some of, you know, the way you would, uh, write your titles, the way you would describe certain, uh, concepts, uh, comes across in the book. Um, so in the chapters, uh, of, of Islamic Sufi networks in the Western Indian Ocean, um, you travel with us across seven chapters, uh, with uh, an introduction and a conclusion with a very useful also appendix on the consulted collections and their source materials from around the Indian Ocean at the end of the book. Um, and you've organized the book geographically and thematically to move uh, along the coastal towns of East Africa, from Lamu of the Kenyan coast to Cape Town between the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean, as well as the transregional connections of these ports to Batavia in Southeast Asia, Mecca, Medina, Cairo, Beirut, Mzab in Algeria, Muscat and Oman, Tarim and Shibam in, in hadramaut Yemen. And in the introduction, uh, you stated the aims of the book as first, um, and I quote you, to link the locations of the Haramain, that is Mecca and Medina, and Hadramaut, Lamu, Zanzibar, and Comoro Islands, Northern Mozambique, Diego Suarez, and Cape Town, with one general movement of Sufi-based Islamic reformist activity. And the second aim is to place changes in this region within the wider Islamic reformist discourse in the mid and late 19th century and early 20th century. I would like to ask you, how can the method of following traveling texts and Sufis around the Indian Ocean can help us think about and write Indian Ocean histories?
1: Uh, I, I... I think, first of all, it's well, we can talk more about the sort of the argument of the cosmopolis and, and the textual cosmopolis later on, but I, I think that just the very textual presence of a certain set of Islamic texts in itself is a, is a, is a way of tying together and, and creating this textual space, if you like, for, the, for this particular part of the Indian Ocean it, with unlimited time and resources. And I know that you could easily tie in uh, Southeast Asia as well. So to me, it is helpful, to, but, but only to a point, you know, because, well, from the methodological point of view, I think, yeah, well, I mean, the texts are there. The, they are, they are around, and and there is even more than we know and we think and we have mapped. So, as as historians, this this is what we've we've got to work with, in a way. And and a proper mapping of uh, of all the texts is yet to be done. So, hopefully, it will be done. Well, this the ripples of reform book is really just scratching the surface, I think. But from if you if you make the argument or if you have the starting point then that these texts are foundational in a sense to society, which are then Muslim societies, then you you can make the argument that these texts form the basis of thinking around all kinds of issues really. From from the state as was would be the argument then, in for example the Idrisi book, legitimacy, uh, daily practice, like from from the most uh, formal and normative to the least uh, least normative, to put it that way, morals and, and just everyday life. Anyway, so so an idea of what the ulama read and what they copied and what they made work and what they decided to have in their libraries is is a way to access this foundation. That's the argument I make in the book anyway. That's not to say that all these these aspects are necessarily expressed or let alone implemented. The fact that you read something in a book doesn't mean that you are uh, prone or even interested in actually implementing it. Or of course it also doesn't mean that everybody can read it that's a very vital uh, qualification and of those who read it it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is fully familiar with the total discourse here so so there there are limitations here uh, i actually also think and i i tried to explore that a little bit in in, in the ripples of reform that uh, these texts are in a kind of roundabout way. They are a way to access the more sort of mundane daily life and and then I'm particularly thinking about uh, the so-called small texts or little texts, you know thicker texts, what people copied in their notebooks, what the students wrote down when they sat in madrasa classes in in that way you you see a gl- you can get a glimpse of. You know the the more sort of not not the big tradition, not the thick books, not the big tracts of uh, of Sufism. So, and what was going on on the day to day basis in the in the madrasas and in the communities? But uh, again, I mean, I, I do think there are some serious limitations because when what I did there in the ripples book, I. Looked into. I looked. I looked into one window in a way, and and there could be, there are many other windows. <laughs> this is just one, so I I get a certain view. And uh, Islamic texts in Arabic are not, of course, not the only texts that circulate, especially not in East Africa. Uh, there is a, the whole range of texts in Swahili, the poetry tradition, which many others are working on. Uh, like uh, uh, in Germany and uh, elsewhere. So Clarice Sevier and others just... So this window, this I don't see that through the, the window where I'm looking. And as we go into the more modern period, of course, and, and the colonial era, all kinds of texts appear, so many of them from Egypt. Some of them I trace in the... In the ripples book, others not. Some of European origin, some from India, uh, from all over the world. And sometimes, I, I ask myself, you know, let what if we looked at completely different texts? When was the first copy of the Communist Manifesto or something circulated in East Africa? How would that look like if you, if if history is a uh, a kind of tower, then it has windows all around, and it all depends on where you're looking so i'm i'm not and en- i'm not I'm not entirely convinced of my own method here, <laughs> but for when it comes to the movement of people, I think that's uh, in a way much more straightforward because the Tarajama literature, the biographical literature is so rich, so straightforward in a way. The, the scholar teachers and, and the biographies about them, they tend to say they did, they did this, they did that, they traveled over there, they met so-and-so. So this is a source. It's a straightforward historical source, I think, yeah, subject to normal source criticism. But you get a lot of factual history out of this. And, and you also get the agency aspect, which I think is also, you can draw it quite easily from there. Mm-hmm. Then that has limitations too. What you don't get is how did they think about their experiences exactly when going, settling in Mozambique, for example, as a DAWA agent? How, how did they experience that? You only get the, the facts you don't get uh, you don't get the motivation other than Tawa or spreading islam or reforming islam and so on so but uh, in it, in combination i i will argue that you do get uh, you do get a map of a of a certain islamic space in the western indian ocean yes
0: uh, definitely. Um, and I like your emphasis on the ephemeral text, the, the pamphlets, the small, you know, thicker uh, text that you you follow, uh, in addition to the manuscripts and the, and the larger tracts. Um, and of course, these texts are not, you know, traveling in vacuum. They're embedded in institutions. They're embedded in larger history and networks, which you trace in this book. Um, and that takes me to your second chapter, The Luminous Sun and Brilliant rays of Light towards the geography of reform. Um, would you sketch for our listeners the examined religious geography in the book and what, what contributes to its coherence and diversity, perhaps using the same metaphors of light and ripples as you did, um, especially in thinking about the monsoon winds, right, uh, and, and what lays beyond the, that, that sort of uh, ecological space?
1: Well, you know, the, the ocean really lends itself to met- metaphor in so many different ways and it's easy to get carried away in your metaphor. So I'm not, uh, I don't want to push the metaphors here. On the other hand, I, I feel rather on safe grounds with the metaphor of light because that is, it's used in religious discourse I think, everywhere, and, and to be enlightened and so on. And, and Islam is certainly no exception to this, the Medina al munawira and the Sufi tradition, which is full of all these uh, visions of light emanating from scholars and from texts and from the graves and so on, and, and from lineages and what have you. Uh, and, and especially the idea of Dawah, of spreading, whether spreading Islam or spreading a kind of reformist idea of Islam is very explicitly formulated in that way. So what what I tried to do there in in the second chapter of Ripples was simply to use the same language and the same metaphors and and place... uh, these different scholarly centers as a kind of what, uh, like beacons. That sounds very sounds very Rashid Rida-like, but places from which uh, right light emanate, clear and illuminating light, and so on. So I position these centers then, especially uh, in East Africa, the Hadramaut and then the Haramain. Uh, as this sort of core centers of light, uh, but then, of course, the key protagonists then are the are these teacher teacher scholars. I I, I use the word teacher scholar, but you could also call them uh, dawa agents or or just traveling scholars for that matter uh they represent then the, the race in a way how how did this light emanate and, and it is represented as such by themselves in, in the way they write about each other and the reform then which they uh, to various degrees spread then that represents these ripples that emanates and flows across the sea and I, again you can, you can you can endlessly metaphor uh, this but uh, it can be a small ripple it can be a big tsunami it can be a flood it can be all kinds of things i i make the argument somewhere in there that it's most often it's neither it's it's a kind of cross current it will split and spread and go in different direction and this will happen because it does not hit the same shore. It hits all kinds of different local communities where it comes, and which then, which then has a kind of agency in its own right. the 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 bedawad those who are uh, encountered along the way, the societies where these teacher scholars worked uh, in. In the book, that is uh, Lamo, uh, Zanzibar, it's the Comoros. I, I write mostly about Grand Comor, and that's simply to do with the source situation. It's not to say, or to my my own field research, it's not to say that the other ones are, are not important. Then Diego Suarez in northern Madag- Madagascar, then parts of northern Mozambique, and and finally cape town and about when it comes to the (laughs) to the metaphors i've sometimes thought retrospectively after writing the book that i should should have used also the concept of modernity itself you know to say maybe it's all submerged in the end or maybe that's still ongoing this big uh, not submerged so much as absorb that there is this mighty tide that absorbs everything, but it, the the analysis uh, in the Ripple's book stops there. It stops with the with the ripple and the reef, basically.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and in addition to the the imagery of of the text, I would argue also this comes from your um, professional career in swimming and your intimate relationship with the water. <laughs> Yeah,
1: uh, exactly. Uh, uh, I never get enough of using image water imagery.
0: <laughs> That's great, honestly. Um, I uh, in reading uh, the book, and and you draw a wide range of sources, whether they are produced in East Africa, but also elsewhere, and colonial sources. And you've mentioned biographical dictionaries, hydrographic texts, um, Islamic legal uh, treatises. Um, that connects also to a very important intervention that you make in East African uh, Islamic history, I would say. And you've published an article on this uh, from, um, was it from Middle Eastern history to African history, Um, in which you argue for taking these, you know, textual sources seriously in writing uh, Islam's history in the region. Um, Would you like to basically highlight why is it important to take into account all of these sexual sources and, and thinking about islam's history in east africa
1: yeah there uh, the, I, th- I can think of two reasons now I'm, uh, I'm i'm trying to reconstruct the argument i made in the book but i i can think of two reasons one one is to do with the connectivity that it is obviously so that uh, texts that are foundational in the Muslim society would be so in East Africa too. I, I think we're a little bit past uh, proving that, but it's still worth pointing out. Then it's also, well, I, I can go all the way back to my old supervisor, Sean O'Faye's argument and, and the work that he did with. Uh, Professor, the late Professor John Hunwick, that uh, they, y- you would make a very wrong assumption if you posit societies without text, in uh, especially in the Swahili context, but overall in the Islamic African context. Then, secondly, the the connectivity argument, and finally. I, I think I think it's maybe this this is a perspective more than a methodology that we do assume that foundational texts, really core texts to a society, shape the society somehow, in ways that we sometimes don't even think about or that are hard to prove. Uh, but let's say a text like the Minhajah Talibin, the mainly used uh, legal manual, it, it's just there. It's the assumptions made there are what, um, what the legal structure is built on, also in the colonial era, before and during. So knowing that tells you something about the society that, that you want to study historically. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and I find in my reading of sub-Saharan African history, especially when it comes to the East African coast or the Sahel coast, the Mali coast, uh, the, I mean, the Mali region, um, that these sources are not taken into account in reconstructing the past, as if assuming that these pasts are void of textual, you know, archives. Um, and I find this is very useful to bring these two together. Um, I would like to, yes,
1: Well uh, no, I was just going to say I mean for, for the Swahili context that that is not that's a, in a way an exception because there is a long tradition of studying Swahili as a literate language that's been around since well almost since the arrival of the Europeans there I mean the, the, the whole German tradition of studying Swahili poetry and so on so Swahili is in a little bit different setting nobody, suggested that it was a textless society. Yes. Uh, what, yes what I'm more arguing is that this is also part of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. But also that people write Kenyan history or Tanzanian history as well. You don't find these sources usually in these books. Um, so I, I would say it will be useful if you're studying, you know, Muslim societies on East Africa also to pick up, you know, uh, Arabic. Uh, and and the recent work that has been done by a number of historians, uh, Thomas McDowell, Fahad Bashara, and others, have shown the potential of these sources. Um, I would like to move to the conceptual framework of the book. Um, how has the study of Islamic societies in the Indian Ocean influenced your framework by deploying de- deploying uh, concepts such as network, mobility, agency? accommodation, religious authority, and translocality as analytical categories. What are the purchase of these uh, analytical categories that you use in the book?
1: Well, I can tell you first about uh, the network uh, concept, because when I started out, it was really meant as a network analysis in in the sort of full sense. I studied all this literature, methodological literature on networks and density and extent and what have you and drawing up circles and representing it uh, visually. But uh, as I went along, I I actually found that it made more sense on a, on a, on a simply on a descriptive level to to laid out as as a narrative because it exists over time Uh, not only space but but time so and and again back to the to the biographical and hagiographical literature that's it really lends itself to to the sort of network approach that's why i suggested it to myself in the first place you know uh, this one traveled there he met so-and-so he had this and that teacher you know wh- how it usually looks but uh, then i i i thought you know what am i doing what what is this you end up with somebody used uh, in a kind of derogatory way said the word ah it's just silsila sociology and i thought yeah that, that's right actually It uh, I took it a little bit to heart to say what does it really show? Un- unless you can uh, embed it in in a in a concrete social setting. So I, I left it a little bit and I uh, to me network then became simply something that I did use on-, on a descriptive level in in a context. I'm I'm not saying that you could. can't be done and i I think maybe even it could be usefully done in in this particular book but it it made more sense to me as a as a narrative device more than a methodological one uh yeah you you said Mm -hmm. mobility Uh, that 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 is the indian ocean story right it's uh (laughs) it's, <laughs> I don't think there exists an uh, Indian Ocean book without the word in it. Uh, I like to link it also actually to social mobility, or I'm trying to. You know, there is mobility, of course. That's a matter of course. But there is also the formation of authority in at a certain place, at a certain time. That happens through certain processes and in in the book i i try to view the two as kind of interconnected mobility is uh, or religious authority is constituted through mobility rather Uh, not necessarily of people alone but of knowledge of textual knowledge of religious knowledge of ritual knowledge Uh, but I, I think the basic outlook in this book, as in many other Indian Ocean books, is uh, mobility. It's, it's there. Mm-hmm. And- Did you say also translocality? <laughs> because that's a concept that, uh, that worries me a little bit. And I, I remember it worried me when writing this book as well because that's also been one of the sort of main perspectives. And, and I, I, I know I say in the introduction to the book that I use it, I, I see translocality both as an object of study and as a perspective. And, and I use it all the time. And again, as a, as a window, again, it makes a lot of sense, I think. You, you can see a certain society a certain group of people at a certain place. And clearly, if you look at uh, many of these Indian Ocean sites, let's say Zanzibar, translocality is there. It's in the practices, just the very fact that uh, the Swahili population is Muslim. It's in art, it's in architecture, it's in language and poetry and, and what have you. So the Indian Ocean is such a space where the history is of so many elsewheres, if you like, has to be taken into account, even if you want to write about uh, one single small place. So it's an object of inquiry. I, when I wrote Ripples, I, I had a kind of ambition to, to capture translocality as a process, and I think this is much more problematic how do you i mean retrospectively how do you point to translocality in the making being formed being uh, constituted that i think is much more how it's much more difficult to pinpoint you can show the result you can show that societies and persons people operate with all these spatial categories they are clearly beyond the local uh, and so many have shown that before and i hope i have shown it in this book but i am a little bit more hesitant whether it's something you can capture as a process so i didn't do it in, in this book i i remember having the ambition and thinking nah, it's
0: not really doable mm-hmm. and that would take also a, a larger time frame to uh, to historicize i guess translogality um, yeah. And uh, one last thing, yeah. uh, in the book, you have the notion of religious authority uh, vis-a-vis local agency. How did you negotiate these two throughout the book?
1: Yeah, that, that was also... Uh, going back to the the Ripple and the Reef thing, I mean, the, the, the embeddedness of the these... Um, scholars or teachers or the the embeddedness of uh, dawah, wh- whether it's actually Islamization or reform, was something that I I thought first I will just do a show, don't tell, you know, I'll just describe it and uh, it will explain itself. <laughs> but it doesn't really. And, and I think it's a perpetual, uh, It's it's a, Perpetual uh, problem because, especially, especially looking at reform, actually, because you reform, it doesn't have to be Islamic reform, but let's talk about Islamic reform. Once you propose to change something to be more similar to somewhere else, typically under a Islamic modernism perspective, then you also propose to change local structures and that, that change can only go so far and um, until it's not acceptable anymore so I, I that, that's how I tried to negotiate it in this uh, in this book and likewise I mean the agent of change also has to change and accommodate and adapt slightly I think I used the example somewhere in the book there that uh, the dawa agents in in Madagascar, they were actually permitted to drink rum in some settings because otherwise they wouldn't be able to integrate at all. Um, and this would be the purpose, or this would be a entry point exactly into the the context where they operated. So it, it certainly works two ways, and I tried in the book to give agency to both, in a sense. Mm
0: -hmm. Now let's move from the conceptual landscape of the book to the more concrete uh, aspects of it. Uh, In chapter 3, 4, and 5, the first three, uh, titled The Branches of Qadriya and the Shadiliya in Northern Mozambique, Silsilas to the South, Chapter 4, the Shadiliya in Northern Madagascar, 1890 to 1940, the planting of a garden, and the growing of of Malagasy roots. And the fifth chapter, the the Cape Town Muslim community and East African Sufi networks beyond the monsoon. Uh, In these uh, chapters, you've noted that the Muslim communities of Mozambique, Madagascar, and Southern Africa have received comparatively scant attention. And these three chapters fill this lacuna by following two generations of Shadali, Qadri, and Alawi teachers as mobile agents, as you say, of a specific form of globalization, forming a network through which both uh, Islamization and Islamic uh, reform could flow. Um, Can you introduce these Sufi orders, how their history unfolded in these three chapters briefly, uh, and the literal societies, uh, their variations along genealogical lines that you've traced, transmission routes, and assimilation that you've alluded to earlier? Perhaps illustrating your answer by the many actors that you've examined in these three chapters.
1: Uh, I can certainly try. <laughs> it's uh, in a in a way what I do in this book is I I treat or I, I trace rather three Sufi orders. The first one is the Alawiya which is the, the Sufi order that originates in the Hadramaut among the Hadrami Sada, the Sayyid stratum. Uh, this is a very sort of known to be very textual or, oriented, very much focused on education, text, and so on. And also by the early 20th century, it was explicitly very dawa oriented. So, spreading knowledge, spreading light—the whole imagery again, spreading practices that they saw as uh, beneficial to, to the community, but also, you know, on the individual level. But I, I treat, or I, I, I do see the Alawia together with the Qadiriya and the Shadhiliya. I, in a sense, I don't see a very big difference between them in in the way they operate, and you also see a lot of overlap up in terms of individuals who are active on behalf of whom, who gather to the, together during the dhikr sessions or the funerals or you know, any ritual expression of practice. So I, I do treat them together, although there are some, some sort of uh, differences between them. The Shadelia, for example, is very often uh, associated with the Comoros and the Comoro Islands and Comorians in general abroad, like typically in Zanzibar. Whereas the Kadiria originally was, I think, first very much associated with people from uh, Brawa, from Somalia, and it has a very rich and strong history there. But as they branch out and spread out, my my argument is more that they are doing the same. They they are operating on the same principle, spreading not exactly the same text, but texts that have the same function and rituals that have the same function. So I'm I'm showing some of the traveling scholars, uh, for example, Muhammad al-Maruf, who spread the Kaderia in uh, the Comoros and in Mozambique, you see that he's he's doing exactly these things. He's uh, um, starting uh, schools, uh, collecting small funds to redistribute among a population, thus creating a kind of community. So in a sense, what my argument is more that what they're all doing is going beyond the whatever ethnic or linguistic or uh, geographical background they might have had and create these kind of, new kind of moral communities that are so typically f- typical for the period. You see the same in uh, Madagascar with uh, one of the scholars there in northern Madagascar, Ahmad al-Kabir, who do the same thing, forming these... Uh, communities around himself and then gradually grounding it in in the Malagasy community from being a sort of Comorian expat uh, order to becoming a Malagasy order and that's the Shadiliya and then you see the same in with the Alawiya and that's when I take the history to Cape Town with Muhammad Saleh Hendricks and uh, and uh, his setting up of a uh, of, uh, teaching institution there. So, al- although they are different orders with different uh, historical traditions, different founders, and certainly different silsilas, they act in the same way. And I have to say, I mean, you. you s- I, I did write that they have <laughs> received comparatively scant attention, which is only partly true because many of these communities have received uh, attention for sure. And I'm thinking for, I, I, I've taken a lot of, ins- I took at that time a lot of inspiration from uh, Michael Lambeck and the work he did in Majunga in Madagascar and also in the Comoros and how he was thinking around uh, the wide range of use and understanding of text, you know, its materiality, its performance or performativity, its sound, language, all these other things, what, what the meaning of text and so on. Uh, and when it comes to Cape Town, of course, the Cape Town scholars themselves have produced extremely uh, rich and detailed history of their own communities and Comorian scholars have produced excellent PhDs on on their own Islamic history so in, in a sense of I've had a lot to draw on and just stitch together what was already there uh, the, again by using exactly these uh, Sufi orders as a thread to to make it from a series make or to produce a proper quilt out of what was a series of patches in a sense,
0: and 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 the work of writing a connected history is not only you know the the act of stitching together, but also what writing a connecting a connected history makes visible in the analysis, which the book does uh, in a way that I would say others haven't done. Um, in chapter six, traveling text Arabic. Literate Learning in Coastal East Africa, 1860 to 1930. Chapter 7, Ritual of Reform, uh, Reform of our, uh, Ritual, Ratab uh, al-Haddad in Southwestern Indian Ocean from 1880 to 1940. And Chapter 8, Consolidating the Network, Waqf Distribution and New Organizations in Zanzibar, 1900s 1900 to 1930. Um, in these three chapters, uh, I would like to ask you: What defined Islamic reform within the Sufi episteme, as you call it? Why did why did it constitute a rupture from the past? How did that manifest in terms of theology, transmission of uh, transmission mediums, writing genres, performance, and institutions? What are the major, I would say, contours of of this? Uh, uh, of this rupture,
1: that uh, I think is uh, is actually the question uh, which many scholars have tried to answer, and uh, which I think this book is a a small contribution of uh, or a discussion about reform. I mean, when I'm teaching this and when i'm thinking uh, about what constitutes uh, islamic reform i i still go back to the work by uh, or the works rather by uh, yitzhak weisman back in the early 2000s i think uh, on salafi and sufi reform in uh, late ottoman syria or damascus i think and and some of his other works because he's saying or his argument then was uh, uh, in the Syrian context that the, the so-called Sufis and the so-called Salafis, they are in fact saying exactly the same thing, <laughs> the, but they are saying it from different worldviews. The, these are uh, concrete manifest suggestions of reform that come, out of different uh, basic views. And that's, I, I've wrestled for a long time uh, with uh, with the Ripples book of coming up with a useful working uh, definition. And, and I'm, I'm still doing that. I, I, um, I give credit here also, I think, to Ulrike Freitag, who touched very much on this in her work on, on the on the Hadrami reformist uh, activities coming out of Southeast Asia. And lately also uh, works by Rediga Sessman and others on how this is in fact also cultural. It isn't only religious, it has to do with culture as well. But uh, bottom line, I, I still like uh, one of the suggestions put forward by Roman Leumann where he simply said it's change with a program. Change with a program and a willingness to move or something. Because that means that you, you don't have to label reform. And I think in the, in the 20th century and now looking back from the 21st, yes, you can find all kinds of reform activity going on in the 20th century and, uh, and the 19th century and the 18th century. Uh, but it doesn't really bring anything in particular to the table if you start labeling it uh, and saying, oh, this is a Salafi reform proposal or this is a Wahhabi and this is this is this and this is that. There is no doubt that these uh, reformists that I'm talking about here, they are Sufis in, in the full sense of the word. And if you should then start saying ideologically or socially in terms of ethnic or inside-outside perspective or locations and so on, I'm, I'm afraid that we are running the risk of projecting backwards in a, in a way, something that was not there, especially when it comes to the motivation, you know, the theological motivation or the legal rationale or so. But uh, so you asked about the break with the past, you know, I think the main break with the past is a urge, a drive to, towards this more coherent moral communities formulated one way or another, usually through theology, but also very much through FIC, through the the legal basic, and expressed socially in in ritual practice. Uh, What you don't see, and, and this is my point in the Ripple's book, is that you don't see a break with the moral authority of the past. The Sheikhs are still valued. the saints are still valued. The moral authority inherent in the silsilas are still upheld and this is the this is to me the only thing that is different from any other reform that you see at the same in the same period. otherwise it comes out the same it really it depends really on what you're looking at. you know the many of the leading Sufis whom i describe in the book and whose uh, whose trajectories i follow they they were also qadis and in their own uh, fatwas and, and rulings they would often make rulings that went directly against the so-called popular practices or what uh, anthropology used to call popular practices in favor of what looks from the outside like uh, concrete reform directly in the Salafi stream. So. And if you look at theology and, and this text that we talked about, then I think that there is an underlying assumption there that is quite clear. The outwardly theology, the, I mean, theology has a meaning that you can understand by rash, rational knowledge, by rationale. You can know it, you can read it, you can teach it, you can uh, organize it in certain ways. You can print it. That's uh, when when the print culture comes in. You can circulate it widely, but you can also know it in in the mystical sense, and the two are not uh, exclusive. In, uh, in in this particular type of reform, so the revelation is in a way the basis for both, but it can be accessed in just in different ways and and I, now it sounds like um I'm, I'm categorizing anyway <laughs> but uh, the the reformist aspect is in all the other things in the outwardly suggestions of how our moral community should function yeah uh, yeah um
0: this yeah, that is very helpful to complicate uh the, the whole historical process rather than thinking of it as a neat, you know, break from the past and a complete rupture. But it's more healthy to think in more in the sense of you know, changes and continuities and discontinuities depending on the aspects you are looking at.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and it they're also just simply organizational changes that are Almost technical, you know. (laughs) We used to organize the maulid in this way, now we will do it in this way because it's more practical or rational. Yeah. Makes more sense to have it on a Thursday or this this kind of thing. That
0: doesn't, of course, preclude, you know, the assumption that it was a static past which did not, you know, uh, change and and was dynamic in its own terms over the centuries until, let's say, the 19th century. Yeah, exactly. Um, The book draws to a large extent on Arabic sources, and that made me think about what are the contours of the maybe we call it the Arabic cosmopolis in Eastern and Southeastern Africa? Uh, Or should Swahili be posited as a cosmopolitan vernacular in the sense that uh, Ronit Ritchie, uh, following uh, Sheldon Pollock, argues for Malay, Tamil, and Javanese in Southeast Asia? Why or why not do you think that? Uh, are there other languages we may consider besides Swahili and Arabic as well?
1: Well, I, yeah, let, let me do the last question first, because definitely I think Swahili has, is one of these uh, cosmopolitan vernaculars, uh, absolutely. And and I think you should ask a linguist and not me. Because, I mean, Swahili is also a continuum, right? It it uh, it's a continuum towards the languages spoken in the Comoros and uh, Northern Mozambique and so on. But but here linguists may uh, disagree with me completely. But if you add, if you see Swahili as as a broad linguistic continuum, then you can argue that it can include all of this, the the whole sort of range uh, of speakers and writers of of the neighboring languages. When it comes to the Arabic cosmopolis of Eastern and Southeastern Africa, when I read Ronit Rich's book, I I thought, you know, yeah, this is it. (laughs) This is exactly it. Uh, And when I read the works of... uh, or both the works but also the sort of lists uh, textual lists from um, Indonesia especially like the ones that von Braunissen did in, in the early early on and so, yeah it's it's definitely part of it it's the same it is in fact the same uh, with of course with variation and of course with adaptation uh, so w- whether or not you posit some kind of origin or not. I, I, I liked very much the cosmopolis uh, of text uh, approach that uh, Richie applied. And I think it imp- applies completely in the East African context. It's the Indian Ocean context.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and... This- Yes, um, I think this is helpful to think about further and uh, trying to find maybe other cosmopolis as well, in the Indian Ocean, uh, which you know facilitated the movement of ideas and knowledge as well. Um,
1: mm. in the last chapter, especially when you when you go into the, especially when you come into the twentieth century, mm-hmm. when when you see more and more and more vernacular uh, publications. Tr-
0: that's true, and especially that you. You've touched on Malagasy, and I was thinking about thinking of Malagasy as well uh, in, in this context. Um,
1: yeah, I, I wouldn't know. I mean, the sadly, late uh, Pierre Larson wrote a really good book about it. And I, uh, it may very well be so. Absolutely. I, I, I have, don't even know a word of Malagasy, so I wouldn't be able to, to tell you. But uh, it's certainly something that's useful to think about.
0: Mm-hmm. Drawing on, on your study of zanzibari uh, can you shed light on the religious or moral economy of Sufi orders, their associations, relationship with the colonial administration, and Salafism, perhaps by talking about the cover of the book, which, is, which is really encompasses a wide range of actors that were middling in these different you know, structures and associations, and uh, uh, dealings with the colonial administration.
1: Uh, yeah, the, the cover of the book, it, uh, something, uh, it's something, it's just an intriguing piece, or there is a set of intriguing pieces of paper that are in the sensible, uh, on our, the Sensible Institute of Archives and Research that, or archives and records, sorry, that um, shows the receipts uh, given upon waqf uh, transfers because there were some big waqfs in, uh, in Zanzibar that were uh, destined for or set a s- certain proportion was set aside for the poor of Mecca and Medina and then over the decades the scholars transferred this funded to Mecca and each individual would have to sign sometimes with a fingerprint and sometimes with a signature and sometimes with a seal most often with a seal that they had received this money so it, it's for me it was one of the few places where you actually had access to see how people were interconnected also in financial terms uh, because in the in the Unlike Fahad Bashar's book, for example, in in the mosques usually don't keep their uh, books. the The bookkeeping is not available in a sense. Who, unless except in the in the waqf uh, setting. So what I was interested in there was basically the organization, how uh, in which the traditional form of Financial transactions, which is the work, uh, was made or done, and then uh, oh, actually this is something I want to dwell more into in a in coming work. But now I'm not sure if I'm talking about the ripples book or the another one. But uh, there is also the colonial context here that comes in very clearly because the work commission in Zanzibar had ultimately had as a its, its clear ambition was to have no wealth. but uh, of course they couldn't uh, leave it all together. They wanted to create a real estate market. Uh, but the individuals in this network, the people who actually did all this money transfer, they knew each other well. They had known each other for generations. It, it operated on a basis of trust, which eluded the British and their efforts to... Regulate, if you like, the wakf market. But what we do see, what what I deal with in this book, is this increasing drive towards uh, organization. From being this kind of network where people knew each other and operated on trust and so on, they became organizations. They became uh, jama'at. They became uh, associations. They were tarikas. They were scholarly networks, and they became. Uh, Associations. So moving from a kind of traditional framework of Islamic institutions, then consisting of uh, the mosque, first of all, and the madrasa and the waqf, it it becomes uh, a transfer from between associations. So this model is quite, these two models are quite different actually when it comes to the organizational form. And I, I do argue in the book somewhere that the, the, the drive towards uh, organization is inherent in the kind of change with the program. Uh, reformist idea that it was formulated explicitly and from the outset to, be, to have certain, a certain agenda, like the awa like uh, Islah, which is often used, the Jameh at Al-Islah, and Irshad, like the one in Indonesia. But it's also organizational. It also happens with the financial transfers, like the Waqf, which I explore in this book. What I didn't go into there, but you, you see the same with the pooling funds for schools, for example, for building new mosques, for supporting uh, Jamia members then to, for further schooling. But they are the same people. They come out of the same lineage. Y-
0: like. Yes, it's really important to highlight the institutional and legal underpinning of these orders and how you know what lubricated basically this mobility it wasn't just you know piety and 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 these ideas but also there was an economy facilitating all of these uh, activities um the
1: certainly there is an economy there and uh uh, the problem I had with this particular book was that you can't really see it if you if you come from the uh, uh, biographical literature or you come from the Islamic texts. or you back to what I said about the windows. You know, this is what you don't see. You s- you do see it in the work transfer. So I was I was happy to have that in a sense.
0: I, I definitely agree to, with you. I've- the last summer, I spent the entire summer just reading the Wakfals and Zanzibar archives. And I exactly. see it all there. Um, lastly, in the book, um, what are some of the impacts of Islamic Sufi reform in eastern and southeastern Africa? And, and the impacts of these regions on Islamic reformist ideas in terms of pan-Islamism during the late Ottoman period, Islamic modernism, uh, Salafism, and lastly, Africanity. Uh, I know these are big <laughs> concepts and connections, Ooh. and we could take us <laughs> to another conversation. Um, but you touch upon this in the book, uh, and I and if you can briefly just connect these uh, with the Sufi orders.
1: Yeah, I I overall, if I if I can try to draw one overall argument out of the. Out of that book is that I, I do argue and I do think actually that there is a kind of Sufi-based modernity growing out of, of this movement, which is still there as well. But this is this is a sense of identity. I I argue at, at the very end of the book, I think, that that it's it's grounded not so much in the actual theology because that's kind of given but in the teaching styles for example in the ritual practices and again the local perpetuation of this you see this in so many locations not only in East Africa you see it even more explicitly I think in in uh, Southeast Asia uh, but uh, and another main argument in the book is what we have already touched upon, how, how these dawah agents inevitably must deal with the hierarchies of power or the social structures or the cultural practices where they operate. And, and this is a constant tension with the, well, both with the pan-Islamist or pan-Islamism uh, ideal and with Islamic modernism and with Salafism, and with Africanity, uh, which I have not actually discussed that much uh, in in this work, because if you ref- if you reform something to bring it in line with, uh, let's say, a pan-Islamism uh, ideal, it also means that you eradicate difference. And in in the local context, this is problematic because you do interfere with local hierarchies and in the colonial context is even more because there is a I mean there is all these different communities that were already pitted against each other or hierarchically placed vis-a-vis each other and then who who are you going to who are you reforming actually or is it your own community only like Then you could say, yeah, the Shadaliyah reforms the Comorian community, the Alawiya deals with the... But it doesn't really work like that. You are forming new moral communities. You could also say that you are building to... uh, The the one thing that you didn't mention is uh, nationhood and Wattaliyah, you know, building towards uh, some kind of unity that has a, a notion of statehood, which I, I discussed a little bit in, uh, in the Ripple's book. I, I do think if we speak about uh, Islamic uh, reform, this is something I've actually formulated later, and it's not in the book, but it means uh, reform is really where uh, local hierarchies go go away to die in a sense they uh, they dissolve ideally they dissolve and and that's just the much of the idea behind uh, islamic modernism that's much of the trajectory of salafism as well but at the same time there is also a straightforward modernity that grows inherently that is not a Living behind of the old, but a modernization of or not modern that's a, that's the wrong word the gradual reform towards existing in a modernity uh, that these Sufi others do and and continue to do to this day
0: yes this is really useful and 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 in addition to your book you've also been involved in a number of uh, digitization and preservation projects of uh, East Africa's Islamic heritage. Um, and the projects such as the Mualla Madris collection in Zanzibar uh, with Scott Reese and the Riada Mosque in Lamu are notable examples. Would you share some fieldwork insights from your projects to, shri- to trace scholarly networks, preserve and digitize is Africa's Islamic textual traditions in manuscripts and print. Do you have tips for graduate students and scholars who want to embark on similar projects? Uh, If you can share some of the successes and challenges, perhaps that would be helpful.
1: Yeah, uh, actually these are the projects that I have found uh, really, really, really great to work with. Uh, I, I do think it's uh, now I'm into a whole other discourse, but you know East Africa has all these cultural heritage sites and, and UNESCO involvement and so on and so forth. But there's actually very little attention to the textual heritage of. So everybody's looking at the houses. I always when I pitch this, I always say everybody looks at the beautiful buildings and the lovely mosques, but nobody asks what's inside of them. So it's really important, first of all. I mean, it's it's important that this is done. Uh, uh, the experience from the two projects has basically been that it's a relatively easy and straightforward procedure, and that it's very, very, very important to work with local partners that who can. Uh, both do the actual technical work, but also sort of alert and explain what are these things that we are uh, digitizing here. What are the what's their meaning? What not not sort of in in a in a uh, in a catalog kind of way. This is work so and so by scholar so and so, but saying this is how we used it. This is what it meant to us or if it didn't mean anything to the living now it might have meant something to our fathers or grandfathers and so on and uh, also to work with uh, local or in, in the case of Zanzibar and Kenya to, to work with the, with the really good institutions that are there like the Zanzibar Institute for Archives and Records or the National Museum of, of Kenya who are have excellent expertise in their own right. Uh, For those who want to try something like this, I really recommend the Endangered Archive program of the British Library. It's a simple application procedure, not very complicated. Uh, It's not a lot of money. (laughs) You don't get funding for cataloging, for example. So that's something that... Uh, You need to set aside either funding or your own work time to do. Uh, But the procedure is so simple and easy. So nobody should be afraid that they couldn't uh, handle the technicality of it. You know, it's a camera, it's a laptop, it's a photo stand. And you need a relatively relatively, uh, unused space, but you can basically do it anywhere and anybody can apply you don't need to have a phd or a professorate or something to uh, to apply so i recommend that i have to say one of the i was approached quite recently by uh, jody butterworth who is uh, the coordinator in the endangered archives program and she was going to give a talk and say what what do researchers get out of it uh, she asked me directly, what, "What do you? What did you get out of it? it isn't it just uh, technical work on the sides? I know it's not at all. What you really get out of it, in addition to something that for historians is extremely important, to make sources available for historians everywhere, not the, just those who have access to expensive uh, online resources and uh, Europe and North America. You also you, while you are working with the material, you get the history of the material. So it it goes two ways because you reflect on it, you look at it. Sometimes you can think: Is this something known? Is it something unknown? Do you think it's Sanzibari? No. Why not? And so on. It, these are not answers. These are reflections on how. Texts are posited in a community and and what's, what's their meaning? you know to me that made a lot of sense and it even changed my outlook and sort of drew my attention to the fact that even if the text is, it is unfamiliar today, it still has had a history that people might be aware of if they're not aware of it then that's also interesting you know how how the trajectory of a certain i hesitate to say the word discourse but how a textual community has a history so i i highly recommend it i i would say it's not not at all as important or it's not at all as difficult or complicated as you might think it's something that you can learn so quickly.
0: This is really helpful. And I really like the idea of documenting the social life of these digitized and preserved texts as well, uh, in addition to the act of preservation. Um, and your relationship with one of the interlocutors, Moala Madris, you you mentioned actually in the book, is, is uh, an aspect of, you know, uh, uh, in this project, because uh, it also gave you and, uh, and access to, to how these texts were embedded in the society, um, understood and uh, circulated. So this is really valuable. Thank you so much. Um, I know you've taken uh, we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, you've been very generous uh, with your time, but also you're one of the most generous scholars that I've encountered in my field work. Uh, and finally, I would like to ask you, uh, what are you working on now? Can you tell us about your current or future projects that you hope to work on?
1: Ah, oh, I can try. <laughs> I can try. I'm actually trying to finalize a, a new book. I'm just working on it, and I, I regret what I have done because I started. Out saying okay now I've been skirting the issue for so long let's now talk about modernity (laughs) Uh, and the interwar years in Zanzibar in particular and it's such a hard topic to deal with because so many historians have had an opinion on it right and so many others have touched on it and it also touches on so many debates on our time like everything from decolonizing academia to trying to look beyond all this What I'm really trying to do is look beyond the narrative of progress and development, as it's called, and then you get into the whole literature of the conscripts of modernity and who are the conscripts and who are the mercenaries and what sort of agency does a conscript have and blah blah. So I'm (laughs) I'm struggling, but uh, hopefully it will be finished someday. Uh, Also, we hopefully have a new project in the pipeline. And that's together with Chasti Larson, who you might know, who worked on uh, spirit possession cults in in Zanzibar and East Africa and Scott Reese and others where we try to look at the manuscript to print transition again, but here based in a a thesis that there is a continuity through performance because I'm really getting more and more interested in the actual performativity of text, Uh, And the hypothesis would then be that even if there is the manuscript to print transition, performativity in itself is a a factor for continuity. But that's not in my hands. That's in the hands of the Norwegian Research Council. So we'll have to see.
0: Well, anyone who listens, please uh, contact. (laughs) (laughs) If you have Um, any
1: connection in, use it now.
0: These are really (laughs) exciting projects and I'll be looking forward to them um thank you so much for your time and thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored islamic sufi networks in the western indian ocean 1880 to 1940 ripples of reform published by Brill in 2014 this is your host ahmed Almazmi mazmi stay tuned for the next episode of nick new books in the indian ocean world